Okay, so uh, what I'll do is I'll just introduce you. Okay. Then I'm just going to read a review of what I came up with from this book, Why Write. Okay. And uh, it'll contradict uh, everything you've said in your book, okay? Okay. <laughs> anyway. So here we go. Stephen March is a novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He is the author of half a dozen books and has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He lives in Toronto with his wife, Sarah Fulford, who's the new editor at uh, McLean's, which is Canada's... What is it? Is it the national, you'd say it's our leading magazine, our national magazine? Yeah. I can't think of one that would, that would, that would go ahead of it. No. It's, I mean, it's been in existence for more than 100 years, too. Yeah. Yeah. The ones from the 50s are totally incredible. I know you're a big magazine collector, but like it was, it invented cosmopolitan Canadianism, you know, like the cosmopolitan Canadian. So, uh, yeah, I think it's Canada's leading magazine. Very good. Well, welcome, Stephen, to the Bibliophile. Pleasure to be with you. So we're going to be talking about your book uh, on writing and failure, published by WASIS. And I just want to summarize a few notes I've taken from a book called... Why Write by Mark Edmondson. He suggests, contrary to positioning writing as failure, what if you present it as the thoughtful, nuanced interpretation of the world, of experience, that could shift perception, change lives for the better, Enlarge the contours of your mind. Give others pleasure and instruction, truth and beauty. Now, writing done with a pure motive and a, a detachment from desire, that kind of writing can add to the stock of available rea reality, enlarge the mind, strengthen the spirit, improve character, make you happier, teach you to think, compel you to use reason, Make sense, understand the world, know your own views. And finally, we may never answer grand questions about human nature or what is the best way of life, but we are at our best when we pursue such questions. So how is this failure? Well, I mean, that is a uh, horse feathers description of the writing life I mean, to be frank like that's not that's not a recognizable description of what it means to write or what it means to actually try and make meaning out of there in the world and i mean there are a lot of books out there that want to create this romantic idea of what it means to actually write um but you know they're mostly written by creative writing professors who don't have to worry about money and also don't really have to write He's suggesting that you remove yourself from all desire. Yeah. And just the the actual act of writing itself, I think, delivers all of what he just said. 
I think if you're writing without desire, you're that's that that has never happened. Like you, there is a re, you, you have to have a reason to write, and in fact, the better the reason, the more the deeper the motive, the better the the better the writing, and also the more likely you're going to survive. If you're just writing for its own sake, um, well, self knowledge, self knowledge. Well, I guess then you're not trying to share it with other people. Right. And you're not you're not entering a marketplace of ideas and you're not. And, and I mean, that to me is not really to me. Writing is about making meaning and meeting is never in isolation. It's always in a it's always in an interaction with other people. Right. I mean, that's what's so torturous about this. Right? like, that's why it's so hard to do is that you actually don't have autonomy when you're writing. Like and the and certainly you don't have it in your career. You have very little control over your career and you have very little autonomy over it. So. You know, the book that I've written is really a kind of corrective to those, to those, um, I don't know, like the, 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 this, this vision of writing that goes back really to Rilke and Letters to a Young Poet, uh, of a kind of like that it's self sustaining and it, it just is not self sustaining. Like it's, it, it, there needs to be a reaction in the world for it to be meaningful. And that reaction is totally unpredictable and it's totally outside of your control as a writer. And I think if you're writing for yourself without, if you're writing without desire, uh, you're just not going to write very much or very long. Well, desire to make a living. I would say that you can write with desire to know the world better or know yourself better. That's a pretty strong desire in all humans. I think what you're suggesting, though, is you're talking about the 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 work, the career, the the life of a professional writer. Yes. No, I, I don't. I don't think so. I think if you want to know yourself better, or you want to understand the world better, there's a lot better ways to do it than writing, um, traveling, reading, talking to people, learning skills, um, like all of those things. I mean, in my experience, like people who have self knowledge, like. Writers are not particularly um, self-aware people. <laughs> but I mean, you've done this. If you've been doing this racket for a long time, right? Like, how many writers have you met? And you're like, wow, there is a guy who's really gotten himself into a good psychological space of self-awareness and self-consciousness. I mean, that that's not the result of 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 this of this activity. Be without desire. Have no attachment is actually a very estimable you know, practice like that is, I mean, I, I would consider that, you know, uh, something to be envied completely writing 100% is an act of attachment. It is, it is an act of, of not freeing yourself from desire, but jumping into desire. Yeah. I suppose, uh, would you say it's a desire to be acknowledged, a, a desire to be understood? Well, what? Well, I think there are a lot of, like, you know, first of all, lots of bad reasons that people do good things right like there's a lot like people make important things because they want fame or they want things you know writing is a terrible way to become famous and it's a terrible way to make a living so if you're writing for those reasons like you should just stop like that's a very like that that's a that's a bad bad outcome that you're not going to get that out right like that's it's very unlikely that that will be the outcome so i think the desire for writing is not is not necessarily something external or it, it, it's not, or rather it's not something material. It's the desire to mean things to people and to have, and to have this very strange reaction where you're doing something in private 
that then responds to somebody else receiving it in private and in the mo- and in, in the silence of their own minds from the silence of your mind and that that's an extremely powerful experience right like it's even though it's invisible even though it's completely subterranean and and, and, and you know like if you're a stand-up comedian you feel the crowd right if you're if you play guitar you feel your audience right um if you're a writer even if you do readings and so on that's not really what you're doing right like you're 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 allowing people into a privacy that is that is your own right and that um that is truly powerful and that is truly incredible and there is nothing like it there is no there is no art form that is uh that has that other than writing um but i think in a sense that gap between the reader and the writer which is the the power of writing is also the torture of writing and why it is so filled with failure so so incredibly overwhelmed by failure yeah i would i would agree that the you know the whole publishing business is characterized by failure in the sense that so few of these books yeah earn back the investment that you put in them so and that's and they're sort of betting on hitting it big with a few out of hundreds yeah so in that sense i guess that, that i would agree with you you yeah. you make uh, you make a lovely point i'm just looking for it here i'll just read this out this is you on page 68 you say you talk you're talking about keats's ode to melancholy and specifically you say that he wrote for you at age 15 uh, in a suburb, in a city, in a country, none of which existed at the time of his writing. He may not have known it, but he did. And I do not know who I am writing this for, or for what time, or to what purpose, but there is a deep longing in me, and it's not a lie, not a fraud, to make these words for you. These ephemeral connections are the substance of victory, to belong to a constellation of meanings, to alleviate a specific, minuscule, cosmic loneliness. It seems like such a small satisfaction to expend your life on. It isn't. You ask, why send my scribbles? Ovid in his exile asked, because I want to be with you somehow, somehow, anyhow. That's mm. beautiful. It's kind of a longing. It's a longing to escape loneliness. Yeah. Well, and not just, I think it's a very specific kind of loneliness, right? Because the loneliness that, you know, the ordinary alleviation of loneliness is face-to-face, right? Like, that's the only way that you actually get out of loneliness. But it's a particular kind of, as I wrote, like cosmic loneliness. The sense that your own meanings are just your own, right? That they just that that only that only you know what you're talking about. And I think in really great work, and even bad work, you can sometimes feel this profound sense of recognition. And that that recognition, even even when it's false, even when it's not or incomplete or temporary or or misguided, mistaken extremely profound and and registers on a level that i i don't think like when you when you've had that it, it is 
satisfying and and provide solace in a way that you know very little else can. You're kind of losing me. What kind of recognition? Well, that somebody has thought what you've thought, right? That somebody that somebody knows what it's like to be what you are. That somebody knows that the, the meanings that somebody else have have this, you know, that you share a meaning with them, right? Like even that that very basic that very basic fundamental feeling of, you know, I know what um, what Shakespeare was saying. Right. And I know that it that that and that still means something to me. And that means that the difference of 400 years and history and 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 the and space and time um, are not as empty as we think. Yeah. Right. Or, or as they might see. And, and then that and that cosmopolitanism in time and space, um, you know, is the substance of like what, you know, what it means to have a shared humanity, too. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. And 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 I think that's and I think that's there's no there's no replacement for that. Yeah, it's funny you should mention that. I had this experience yesterday watching this documentary called Capital, that's mm-hmm. based on the French economist Piketty's work. Oh, sure. It basically talks about how the elite and uh, capital run run the show but it's something i've been thinking a lot about and this documentary the writers of it expressed it visually and verbally in a way that uh yes as you say it it sort of uh it feels good not to be alone (laughs) yeah well and it feels good to have the world recognized right That, that, that the world does not just go on without any just in a maelstrom of its own uh, self-consuming, that it's actually like someone can be there and see it, and you see the same thing that they see. I mean, I think that's a profoundly humanizing experience. Yeah. Okay. I I, uh, I was put in mind of one of my favorite books. I read uh, it quite often when I was younger. Somerset Maugham's A Writer's Notebook. And... Yeah. Uh, Quite similar to to what you've done longer, but right at the very end, I'm going to go. I'd like to read that book back to front. So this is what I've I've done with yours to some extent. You talk about a note on how I work, and you tend to explore. You say your feelings and thoughts in essays and articles for various publications, and you mentioned the ones that I mentioned at the beginning. Yep, and. Uh, Then you say, I just took a few bits, though, and they're pretty chopped up. That's the last line in your book. And I thought, wait a minute. I want him to put some more thought into this. I'm thinking these these articles are what you put the thought in, and these are just chopped up? Well, I put, you know, I wrote a piece for the New York times about, about failure in like 2014. And then I wrote a piece about David Foster Wallace for Esquire when he died, which I can't remember when that was or me. No, it wasn't when he died. It was when um, the movie came out about his life. And then I wrote another, another piece for the LA review books about uh, the Obama years. And each of them had parts that were about failure and were about, you know, 
uh, particularly the contemporary tradition of rejection, right, and the state of rejection as a as a practice, basically. And you know, I the idea, like, it, it would seem wrong to me to say that this that this book is adapted from them. Do you know what I mean? Like, they like I went and took like one paragraph or two paragraphs out of each of them, and then I completely rewrote them in the thing. So I was just trying to like it's like it, it would be it would be like it certainly is not like collected essays or something like that it's more like well i had a good line in that bit that i wrote for esquire i'll just take that bit for this right and that like that's what i was trying to explain i know but the what i of the reader and we do touch on this of course is my interpretation is you use the word just and chopped up and i thought well why didn't you just say i took the best out of these and i polished them up then i would have felt better as (laughs) As a reader, I would have felt a little better because that's the last, that's the last sentence that you left me with. <laughs> I think when you're writing essays, the essays that I like have a variety of tone, very, very high to the very low. I mean, that's the beautiful thing about the essay, right? Is right. You can just, you can sometimes write about like John Keats and like your, and, 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 and like referencing Ovid. And at the same time, you can just say, yeah, I just chopped up some bits. Yes. I mean, okay. Yeah. yeah. That that's what I that, I mean that's what I love about the essay and like to me that's just very conscious right like like the the like the way I like to write is where is by having these modes kind of jut up against each other because I think that's 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 what what recreates the feeling of having a really frank conversation with a very intelligent friend which is the the way that a really great essay should feel right I agree. Um, the distractions and the little divergences are the, are often the the most fun part in an essay. You notice that line, right? If I'd written it just in a normal way, like I took the best bits and polished them up, you would never have thought of it. I you wouldn't have. You're absolutely more right. more honest and more evocative. So you know, that, I mean, that's job done. <laughs> Good. <laughs> okay. Now, one of the points that uh, comes up often in the in the book uh, is the fact that the quality of your writing will have very little effect on your career, mm. and yet it is the only thing that matters. Right. That's true. Which you then follow up with the overwhelming majority of the time you'll be doing it for its own sake, you'll be trying to write the best that you can for its own sake with a vague, not particularly sensible hope it will somehow resonate. Now, are you concerned about the number of people that it resonates with, or are you happy if it just resonates with one person, or what? Well, I mean, I personally would like as big a resonance as possible. But on the other hand, you know, not every thing that you write is going to have a big market right and like i think certainly there are books that i absolutely adore that that certainly never achieve but i mean if you read histories of bestsellers from the 20th century you've never heard of any like that's just like what like you you, you, and they they lose their resonance very quickly so i'm not judgmental about that i mean i you know i've been in a lot of different forms of writing i mean i think that's one of the things about being a writer right now is that you're you, you know you you live through a whole modes of writing that then disappear magazine columns, blog posts, and so right. on podcasts. And so on. like, you have to adapt to everything. It makes no sense to be judgmental about form, but I mean, I, 
I try to get as much resonance out of everything that I write that I can. I think that's my part of my job. But on the other hand, you know, I, I'm not under the impression that it's if you don't have a million seller, then a book is not meaningful, right? Or indeed that a million selling book is somehow more meaningful than a non-selling book. I mean, I think I think when you read the the history that is the the bulk of this essay, right? Like a lot of this stuff had no like goes it comes and goes, or it um it, it you know the stuff that really explodes like doesn't stay. Right. So it's like it's I, I mean, I don't think there's really an answer to that, except that it's kind of a thing indifferent, as Milton would say. It's like it, it, it doesn't really some bestsellers are fabulous. Some are not. Right. So it's like it's 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 a thing indifferent, I would say. I like how you bring in Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah. There's some very uh, sharp observations. For example, the crucifix of Jesus Christ has become his meaning. Love is the only answer, no matter how betrayed the love. And then you talk about uh, failures, these failures being triumphs. How do you, how would you describe that then for a writer? What, uh, how is a failure a triumph? Well, the interesting thing about like, you know, I sort of go back, loosely drift backwards in time, which is something that I like, I like to do. Um, but at the real foundation, there are like three, and they weren't even writers. They were just the foundations of writing, really, like Socrates, Confucius, and Jesus. They all ended in catastrophes, and they and their works were completely rejected. Like they could not have been more more totally rejected. Socrates was literally killed for what he wrote, for what it was written, for what he said. Uh, Confucius was completely ignored. Basically, was starving to death, even though he was, you know, the the greatest political analyst of all time. And Jesus, you know, we all know what happened to him. They struck, they suck him up on a cross and crucified him. Um, but in those rejections, in that, in those failures, right, you see the kind of ultimate truth of their projects, right? Like in, in the case of Plato, in the case of Socrates, um, I mean, it's very clear that philosophy can only exist no matter, you have to pursue the truth no matter what the consequences. Otherwise, it's not the pursuit of truth, right? And that to the point of death. Confucius, it's the same thing. It's like, well, the reason government isn't well run is because no one will actually listen to benevolence. No one will actually listen to the, to wisdom. Yeah, as you say, the powerful yeah. aren't benevolent. Yes. Yeah, that like power and benevolence are extremely rarely combined. Like that's that was absolutely clear in his, you know, just in his life story. And then in Jesus, it's like, well, yeah, he chose love, even though he knew it would result in his total destruction personally, which is the... I would say, through St. Augustine and Paul and so on, probably the core message of Christianity. So, like, you have in these original failures, which, I mean, even the, the kind of predate writing, they're trying to, like, give birth to, you know, the great forms of writing. So, Western philosophy, Chinese humanism, uh, you know, Christianity. Like, in, in, in these great forms of writing, you have, at the at the origin point, um, extreme failures. Like not just yes. not just like what happened yes. on Akmanova or William Faulkner or whatever, but like extreme failures. And look at the Bible and look how deeply it's studied. So in a sense, that's a yeah. huge success. They get together to read his book every you know once a once twice a week, right? Yeah. Like and like they, they he's got fans, right? I mean, on the other hand, 
you know, many of his fans used his writings to torture his own people and, you know, like, and create as an excuse for empire. So there's also misinterpretation and mistakes there too. But yeah, I mean, he, to me, he is the ultimate failed writer in a way, right? Like he, he is the, he is the ultimate example. I know that may seem a bit sacrilegious, but you know, I, I can live with that if my editors can. You say that uh, intention never aligns with results. I would suggest that if your intention is to make someone laugh and they laugh, that kind of alarm. Well, you, you know, I mean, I think I was speaking more broadly of like great literature where it's a it's a free space for play. You know, you say if you make someone laugh and you laugh, like the famous example is Jonathan Swift famously said, I wrote uh, Gulliver's Travels as an indictment of all humanity and it became a book for children, right? Yeah. Like he intended it to be a satirical laughter that he generated where like people would laugh at themselves and then change their behavior because of laughter. Instead, it would just turn into some nice kid stories that people that people laugh at because it's funny to see a big guy tied down and wonder how he pees, right? So like even in and, and Swift is you know the most precise of writers, and even he really you know did not generate the effects that he wanted, and 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 certainly I think with um with a lot of authors that you know, you, you think of as incredibly like they had like like Orwell or something like that where you, you could think like well he had a very clear point of view and he had a very clear direction to his writing, um they're the first ones to speak about how they've been totally misinterpreted. Right. And, and taken in, in ways that they never even imagined they could be taken. Yes. I mean, both sides of the political spectrum, like to pick him and yeah. post him as yeah. an example. Yes. Take Orwell as an example, as a major defender of the British Empire, which he, which has been done, it, you know, which, you know, he certainly was in the 1990s. I mean, I think to him that would have been totally absurd beyond belief. Yeah. But, um, but you know, he's certainly not the only case like that. And Flaubert spoke of it. I mean, Borges spoke of it. I mean, it's it's not something that um, that is sort of a one-off. Like many, many, many writers talk about the permanence of misinterpretation. I mean, any interpretation mm. is misinterpretation, really. Yes, uh, I mean it has to be with you know, given what what I as the reader bring to your text and what you've brought to it, it's not going to be a hundred percent match. It can't be. Correct. Yeah. Well, it's not, it's also that, you know, like Auden said about Yeats, like the words of a dead man are modified in the guts of the living. Like, I think part of the reading process, like, I, you know, that thing we talked about before about how it's at a distance and it's your privacy mixing with someone else's privacy, like it gets transformed on the other mm -hmm. side into meaning is that it resonates in a way, but it, in, a, in a recognition, but that recognition is never, um, you know, complete. Right. And there I mean, there are horrible examples, obviously, like Nietzsche being taken up by the Nazis when, you know, he was he, he hated anti-Semitism with in, with a total intensity um, yeah. and would have been hor horrified. And then there are just, you know, ordinary examples of people misunderstanding ba the basic premises of the entire compositions. Right. And I think that's I think that's sort of what we're we're inside misunderstanding. Like, I don't think there's there's any other way for us forward. So, again, as a writer, uh, you have to accept that you're going to fail to completely communicate exactly what you want. That's sort of part of the, the exercise. 
Yeah, or I think you you have to understand that what you're doing is not necessarily communicating, right? Like that's not quite what you're doing. You know, when you write a news item about thing that you're trying to communicate things as clearly as possible. And I think clarity, you know, I mean, that's what Pound said, that like clarity was the one moral requirement of mm-hmm. work, right? Which I, I, I totally agree uh, on. But, you know, the, the, the that clarity is only ever going to be partial. Just like just like human beings are only ever partial in their understanding of each other, right? And, and like I think literature just reflects that that reality. I mean, I think it is so important to understand that that we're that we're never in perfect systems of community. That we're never that there's always something about people that we don't understand. That there's always a black box in another person. You can't really be a humanist unless you understand that. Like you never you never know the whole story about someone. And that's why, you know, you should suspend judgment about them. Right. Yeah. And that's why and that's why it's so important to do that. Yeah. Well, let's turn to Beckett here. You suggest that his fail better, which is one of his most famous uh, phrases, you say that people, they take it as a kind of ersatz wisdom. They miss Beckett's point. Beckett didn't mean failure on the way to delayed success. So what did he mean? He meant learning how to fail. First of all, he meant to undertake the act of failure in itself or like not to do it as a way to success and to learn how to fail in a better way, which is not the same as like I ran six companies that all died before I came up with, you know, (laughs) Yes. A juicing, I mean, you know, a juicer that I can then sell that I sold to hundred thousand people and uh, right. got my money out of, right? Like that's not what he meant. Like what he meant was to understand the act of failure as a a, a a work of grace in itself. I wouldn't say a virtue, but like a a a work of grace that is, first of all, essential to art. Like if you're not if you're not willing to fail, you will not make art. Right. Like that, like if you want to value art, you need to value failure um, and in yourself, you know, in your in your in, 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 in as an act for you. Right. And so I think um, that's that's what he meant rather than kind of the um, on the way to. Success. Yeah. Or, or just like, you know, just a way of showing off how much grit you have. Like, that's not the point. Right. Like that's not like that. That's that's not what we're here to do is to show off how tough. Right. Like it's it's something much more conscious of the of the limits of what human beings are and and conscious of the limits of our limitations of our potential acts. Right. You tie this fairly closely with the motives of perseverance. I'd say, well, not Mm. tie. It's just juxtaposed, I should say, (laughs) in the in the book. That's a key. I mean, it's right in the title, too, the the. the subtitle, it's, uh, or on the peculiar perseverance required to endure the life of a writer. Yeah. Perseverance is what's required. Like, that's, like, that's, if you want to survive as a writer, that's what it's going to take. I think I felt, I know I felt as a kid writer that, like, if you just got, if you just won some prize or something, or, like, got some, whatever the latest achievement is that you can get one step more up the ladder that you'd suddenly feel like you were safe and that you'd arrived and that it was all going to be fine. And, you know, maybe there was some time in history where that was true, but it, it, I, I have not seen it. 
And I've known, I've known, you know, some very successful writers by, by any definition, and they sure don't feel it. I'll tell you that in my experience. I mean, I'm sure there are ones who do feel it, but they, in my yeah. experience, there's, there's, there's very little sense of that. If you take money out of the equation, well, if you take money out of the equation, then we're going to, well, then you starve, then you, then you starve or you do something else to, to yeah. let's just, let's just assume you're able to, to survive. <laughs> so, Perseverance, I'm just speaking from my own experience here, it's not so much that it requires that much effort if you love doing that, whatever that activity no, I, is. It's or, it, yeah, I mean, but it's because I love doing it. Right. Or, or, I mean, you know, it's funny. I was having drinks with a friend of mine who lost his house from gambling during, the, during COVID, and... Um, we were talking about our vices and he was like, you know, what's your vice? And, um, you know, I actually don't like, you know, I can drink and smoke pot and whatever, but like, I, there's something in me that always pulls, and I have no appetite for gambling, like something in me always pulls back from all of it. And I thought about it for a while and I was like, well, my vice is actually writing. Like, that's right. Where I want to play in the stakes like that, like that, where I feel this like privacy that, that, you know, you were, where the stakes are enough to hurt you. And like you, and that you, and and that you, and you're in that place. Like that's where it is for me. Is it okay? You're addicted to writing, but you're addicted to what? The fame or the money that it could get you? It sure, isn't the fame and the money? I'll tell no, you no. Was. But what? But what are you addicted to then? I think I'm addicted to, um, sort of a very grand privacy. That I'm when I'm alone and nobody else knows I'm doing something totally magical that's going to blow people away, and that gives me a kind of power over everyone. Because my my friend the gambler was telling me that he um his therapist said to him, you know, don't you don't have to quit gambling. You just have to tell your family that you're gambling, and that that was terrible. Like he could never do that, right? Like he could never like like, like that would have ruined the entire. That's not what you know. It, it had to be alone. It had to be. It had to be like something that where this where he had this sense of a world beyond the world that nobody else knew of, and that that gave him in a way this power over like you know the 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 the, the stuff, right? And I think that that's what writing kind of gives me is that in some in some kind of um, twisted way. I mean, you know, also I've been a columnist and I have kids, and I've also written for money. Right. For sure. Um, and I definitely take the professional aspects of this business very seriously. I also don't think that the things that you write, like you can write wonderful things from a completely mercantilistic point of view. Right. Like, I, mm -hmm. I mean, I really believe that like you can like writing a, a, a feature that you get paid for. Like that's every bit as art, you know, as artistic as the weird short stories that I'm working on. Right. Like and it's every and it requires every bit as much skill and uh, and and understanding of it. But, you know, for me, there is, like, definitely a compulsive element to writing, for sure. It's a, it's but like, that's just me. I mean, I think everyone's reasons are different, right? I mean, everyone has different motives. And, and those motives are often really submerged and really, and really hard to see and often kind of probably irrelevant to the work that gets produced, you know? Yeah, I mean, I'm still having trouble seeing how writing is failure, though. 
I really am. Especially, again, it, it, to use my favorite phrase, if we take the money out of it. <laughs> well, I mean, okay, first of all, like, you know, as Samuel Johnson said, anyone who doesn't write for money is a blockhead. I mean, that's not, it doesn't make sense. But, like, you are taking a huge amount out of a profession if you I, take money out of it. I mean, like, I don't think many people would be doctors if they took the money out. No, like, no, no. Doing but... it for yourself, right? Like, I, like, I, I mean, and that's doctors. That's things we actually need, right? So, like, I, I mean, I, I think money is a big part of it. But I, I mean, really, I think the, you know, think about baseball, which is often considered the sport of failure, right? Like, if you hit, if you hit a ball three out of ten times, in a, you are the best hitter in the world. Right. Like, like if you have a 30 percent success rate. So if you're in publishing and one out of 10 books of yours earns out and and makes a lot of money, you're a superstar. Right. Yes. Like you're you're at, like you're you're absolutely way ahead. So like even in the business itself, there's a huge amount of failure built into it. There, there's a lot of books written and very few ever register beyond a few hundred copies. Like I, I think the, I think the numbers in the book, I think it was 300,000 copies a year. Where like that are published in the United States, I mean, maybe three hundred or successes. So that's like a one in ten thousand ratio, right? Like that's a lot. A oh, one in a thousand, I guess one in a thousand. So that's a, let's, okay. that's a lot of failure just strictly on a material basis. Never mind whether those books are any good, right? Which is a whole other, you know barrel of fish i think also failure it's not just built into the business but it's built into the process of work right like when you when you work like you're mostly throwing stuff out like yeah. that is like that is like almost 90 percent of the activity of being a writer is like writing stuff that you know you're gonna throw out that's that's part of it that's part of the crap that's part of the act itself so it's you know i i mean i think it is it, it is integrated with failure in a way that I don't think any other cultural practice really is. Now you say throughout the book, no wailing, but I, I get a yes, sense. No, I you get a sense. I know no whining. Yeah. No whining, but this is kind of a, there is kind of a sense that this is a whine. Well, I mean, as I say in the book, every literary essay takes the form of lament. Like, like, I mean, I think that is, that is partly true. But I actually find, I mean, the reason I wrote this book is that I found these stories really comforting. Like, I mean, genuinely, that guy you read to me at the beginning, like, why write? Like, that doesn't help. That doesn't help me, like, proceed through my year. Like, what helps me is to know that, like, they, honestly, it doesn't. Yes. Like, what, what helps me is, is like, you know, like, that you're doing it for yourself and it's honorable and noble and so on. What I want to hear is, like, Samuel Johnson was out like writing down hooker life stories while running a poetry contest yeah. while translating like to get to make ends meet like that's where it's yeah. like oh right yeah. okay when i mean that's inspired that's I'm not, I'm not, again yeah that's well that because it's real like that's what yeah. i mean ultimately that's that's the that's the actual real practices and it's not um and it's it's worth doing like it's not it, like it's not worth doing unless you're some saint Right, like living for, without desire in the no, it's writing real. for your for your own heart, or like if this helps yeah. me understand the world better, I'm good because I love to learn and laugh. Okay, yeah. and if I, and if if this helps me to do that, banking any ends meet. If I'm able to do that uh, in another way, 
I'm good. But the the money, like obviously, the money is not really what we're talking about here. We're talking about meeting. We're talking about registering with other people, which is why you have, say, for instance, a podcast, right? Which you then put out, and then you put on Twitter and say, "Hey, why don't you come listen to it?" And then you yeah. hope that people come, and and like that's a very that's like that's the that's the real struggle of this business, and it's tough. And like I I think anyone who tells you a that it's not valuable. And be that it's easy or that it's all going to work out on its own. Like, yeah, th- those are all those are all just lies. And they're like, yes. and they're and they feel kind of pretty, but like they're not yeah. they're not valid, right? And so I think when you read like when you read these stories, I mean, this how it began with me just collecting like what happened to Herman Melville, Forrest, yes, yeah, yes. a form of like deep, like it was like a god torturing. I mean, it, well, it brutal. Fact. Sorry, in fact, you know that Melville House was named precisely because of that, the publishing house. Is that true, eh? Yeah, I didn't yes. know that. Well, yes. I mean, that's a good reason to call it that. Yeah, I mean, it's horrible. And to know that that's like, that's what happens. That's what happens. Well, so what are you doing, Stephen? Are you lowering your expect? You're trying to lower your other people's expectations? You're sort of saying, listen, don't get caught up in this, this fake, like, don't become a model because only a tiny fraction actually become, you know, don't get caught. Oh, no. up in I mean, well, I would say, I mean, I'm, I don't really, as you know, I don't know what the effects of anything I write. Right. So like what people will take from this, I don't know. I would like to say that there are people who expect to get rich and famous doing this or celebrated in a particular way. And that's yeah. insanity. Don't. Yeah. If that's, how, if that's why you're doing this, don't. Like, don't do it. Just leave. There's there's way better ways to do it. Also, if you're trying to make the world a better place, also way better ways to do it. Don't do don't do that either. There's like if you want to do this art, this practice, and and and, and in it in it search for meaning, you're gonna have to understand that it's a, you know a dark wooden path. It's a dark path in a dark woods. I certainly would not say, and I I I firmly believe that it's worth going down. And that it is that it is that that path is actually valid in itself, no matter what happens, no matter whether you get destroyed or not, no matter what, whether you what, what like going into that path, anyone who goes there, it's sort of like anyone who goes gets into a boxing ring, like anyone who gets into a boxing ring is worthy of respect, period. Right. right. Like, 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 like it doesn't matter if they if they get if zero twelve is their career and they and they end with brain damage, like anyone who gets in that ring has done something. And similarly, yeah. I think anyone who goes down this dark path, they've also they've also done things. But I just don't want to have this this nonsense around it. It it just doesn't feel valid to me. And I think it's actually much more encouraging to know that people share the struggles that people have. I mean, I'll tell you what, even the the, the small social media response that I've had to this thing where, you know, we're two weeks we're talking two weeks before this thing is even published, um, you know, a lot of writers are like, Oh yeah. I need this, right? So, you know, first of all, no one ever speaks about rejection, which is one hundred percent the the fate of every single writer alive today, right? Like, they, like there's no there's no one so big that they don't get rejected. There isn't, you know. And dealing with that, like, you can feel like, oh, I'm, I must be, I must be just a dumb kid or something like that. It's like, no, no, no. This is the game. This is what it is. Like, it's so you want Like, the good news is the same as the bad news. It doesn't. This is it. Yes. So you're you're giving a, other writers a reality check and you're helping comfort them and give them solace with these stories. Would you say that's accurate? 
I would say these stories gave me solace and I've tied them together in a way that makes them sort of coherent, loosely coherent um, in a way that they, they, it might help other people. It might help other writers. But also, I mean, I think it's for people who, if you want to know what writing's actually like, like this is, this is a much, this is a real, this is a book about what it's really like. It's not a book about like, you know, not having desire or whatever. Like it's a, it's a book about desire. Like what it's like right. to have this yeah. Honor, yeah. Right. Well, I mean, and using that genius Samuel Johnson, the mm-hmm. fact that he suffered awful, severe, lengthy bouts of depression, that gives yeah. me solace because I sure it's the same. So in that sense, it's comforting to know that someone as wonderful or maybe flawed as he who who's left us such wisdom has gone through what I've gone through. Well, I mean, I think like the mental health passage of the book, I mean, it's, it's, it's just the book. I, I didn't do any of the research myself, but like there is a, a high propensity to uh, particularly mood disorders in writers. I mean, way, way over the norm. I mean, it's not necessarily depression, but it's, de- it's, it's mood disorders of all kinds. As I said in the book, like it's a, it, it it's like a what's the word for it it's like a health warning it's like when you when you work in a lumber mill and you could lose a finger and you have to be careful yes. it's the yes. same thing with depression and mood disorders when you're writing like it's something you have to pay attention to because it is it, it is absolutely a risk like it's much it it's you're going into this place where it's a risk and and you just have to be you have to be conscious of it yeah you say I've barely been published internationally. I only earned out a couple of books. I alienated myself out of the literary community of my own country as quickly as possible. I am unprizable. So how did you alienate yourself out of your own country? <laughs> uh, well, I mean, it did take much doing. Like, we're talking about Canada here. Like, but... Um... <laughs> I wrote a I wrote a piece for the Toronto Star when I came back from New York when I was like thirty, where I was like in Canada. I think I said in Canada literature is something that your aunts do in Brooklyn. It's something that you know your skateboard and skateboarders do. <laughs> yeah, I, I was I was never invited. I wasn't invited to a literary festival for another ten years. But I mean, you know, what can I do? I mean, so how do you mitigate the failure then, or do you? I think being conscious of it as a fact of life is actually yes. the best that I can offer. I don't even know if that's enough, but I do know that I am now old enough to know that the sense of failure never goes away. I mean, when George Orwell at 44 says every life, any life viewed from the inside is nothing but a series of defeats. Like that's, um, you know, like he'd already written like many, many best-selling masterpieces, right? And so he was, he had that, he had that feeling too, right? So I don't, I mean, I just, I'm not under the impression that it's going to go away. I think it's part of the task, really. Yeah, okay. I noticed that you use quite a few swear words in the book. This kind of gives it a kind of a negative, rude, vulgar feel. I wonder why. Well, I mean, I think when you're writing small bits about Li Bai and Du Fu, and then you're talking about Boethius, and then you're talking about um, Confucius, and like, 
you know, the, 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 the struggles of James Joyce and Trieste to get in, in Como to get work, you know, it's always good to have a balance. You know, I, I love English swear words. I think, I, I mean, I think tone, I think a variety of tone good and it makes, and it may, and it like, they're very good words. I mean, there's only one word that I didn't use in the whole book. Can you guess what it is? I'm quite proud of it. Cunt? No, no. Well, I didn't use that, but I didn't use the word when. I'm very proud of that. A, a, a historical book without using the word when. I think it's in some quotes, but I never used it. Uh, That's... Who's um, that? George Lee, George Perec? You'd been trying to be George Perec or someone like that? I just hate the word when. I just think whenever you hear the word when, something in your brain turns off. You know, it's just like, or something in your brain brackets it as like, this is something that is now dead, you know? So I, so I tut all the whens out of it. I, I mean, the essays that I like, like Montaigne and things like this, are a huge variety of like, you can take from the very highest, the very highest of the high. And you can yes. take from the very lowest of the right, Absolutely. and I think I think that is the, that's the gift of the essay, right? That it's, yeah. that it allows that kind of variance in in the speech, and so I, you know, I I, I want to take full advantage of that. There are a, a lot of the very choice little phrases that you drop in, like, uh, the, but the marketplace doesn't test talent; it tests timing. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I mean, that's that's obvious to anyone who's been around this for any length of time. Yeah, success destroys what gives success. You, you cite yeah. or Ellison here. Well, yeah, and I mean, there were some writers in the post-war period who succeeded to the point where they just could not, they stopped writing. And it's actually a very fascinating period because it's obviously gone now. But like, there was a there was a period where the literary institutions and the the celebrity of writers was so enormous that the writers literally couldn't bear to write. They were so successful. And it, yeah. it's like, it's Salinger, it's, uh, it's Ellison. I mean, Ellison would be the, the ultimate example, but yeah. um, what's her name to kill a mockingbird? Like, like there's a, oh, yeah, there was a Harper Harper Lee. War, um, yeah. Harper Lee and um, Joe Gould's secret. You know, who who came into the offices in New York, who wrote like a great magazine piece. Actually, it doesn't look that great in hindsight, I don't think. But you know, came back. You know, didn't write. Came into the office for thirty-two years after it never wrote. Very strange phenomenon. Very, but you know, I mean, I think it really makes the point of my book, which is that you like success actually doesn't allow you to write in some way. <laughs> like failure is actually <laughs> integrated into the process. There, there needs to be resistance for you to write. If you're, if there's no resistance, like these writers all failed to write afterwards, right? Well, yes, but doesn't that then tell you you need to be hungry, and that maybe we shouldn't be handing out grants? <laughs> well, I mean, I don't think grants make a difference that you know one way or the other, right? Um, but uh, you know, I like we. Um, I, I certainly think receiving a grant would not be the same thing as being uh Salinger success in nineteen yeah. fifty in in nineteen sixty two. Like Joe yeah. Jay, Salinger in nineteen sixty two would literally have written anything and it would have many millions of readers and he would have made a fortune off of it, right? And you know, with, with Ralph Ellison, I mean it was at the point where I mean, even literally even his notes became massively important central cultural documents to the United States. 
So, like, a, a, you know, a, a grant from the Canada Council is not quite the same thing. <laughs> I like the story you tell about Dostoevsky, which, is, of course, it's well known, but uh, this mock uh, execution that he goes through, and you suggest that the Russian authorities gave him the absurdity of the universe and the vulnerability of human beings. They gave him a cosmic trembling. Yeah. Well, he was, you know, the mock execution was actually, it was a ritualistic um, punishment, but usually it was a formality. They came out, they uh, they showed you the star's uh, forgiveness and you walked away. But for Dr. Iska, they actually took him out and threatened to shoot him. Yes. And he and everyone else with him thought that they were going to be shot. And then they they raised their rifles and then they took them down. And then and then a horse ran across the thing. I mean, it's I mean, the thing is, it's like a scene out of Dr. Right. Yeah. I mean, when you read it, right. Like that, like that, that that's the that's the impression <laughs> it gives. It's like so absurd and like involves these extreme dramas of the soul and this relationship to Mother Russia, and all this, and all this, and God. And, like, the priest is there pretending to give last rites to people. It, it's it's very Dostoevsky. I certainly don't believe that suffering makes you better, and I certainly don't think it makes you a better writer. Like, for sure I don't believe that. But I think there are a bunch of examples that I have in the book where, you know, people t- took things that, you know, really, really tremendously horrific experiences and converted them into some of the most powerful art there is. There's just no denying that. That's just a, that's just a fact on the ground. I was going to say it's the you don't typically go out searching for horrific experiences to then write yeah. about. In a way, it's kind of a gift to Dostoevsky the fact that he survived it, and then, as you say, uh, uh, kind of had a whole new understanding of the world. Yeah, was you know Machiavelli had a similar thing, being tortured and totally excised from political life. And that, you know, then he wrote the prints afterwards. Like, you know, I don't think that means like, hey, let's go torture some writers, see what they write. There's some lovely opening sentences because you do have all of these different sort of snippets of writing here, passages. Like, the greatest historian of all time had his balls hacked off. That's a good sentence. True. Fascinating story. See if I can. Brand historian. You know, poor, like he was just supposed, you're supposed to kill yourself when they castrate you in the, in the Chinese court of the, uh, I think it was, what was it? It was late Han Dynasty, I think. And he, um, he, he refused. He stayed alive and was castrated so he could finish his work. That's heroism. Yeah. Right. Like that's, that's struggle. Although in that case, having his balls hacked off definitely did not help him. Definitely well, was not like, oh, now he can write. Like he would have written without having his balls hacked off. He just had to endure. No. No, but he could certainly write about having his balls cut off. Well, yeah, but I mean, you've got to be a better... Like, you know, let's leave that to the realm of speculative fiction. <laughs> you've got a certain hate on for Allen Ginsberg, it seems. Yeah, I mean, he's just so pompous and vain. It was just kind of the... Like, obviously, he was the opposite of Ezra Pound in every way, for good and bad. Right. Like in, 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 in good ways and bad ways. Right. Like he was yeah. like Pound was a total moralist. He was a complete you know fascist. I mean, the 72nd Canto is about a as an Italian woman leading a battalion of Canadian soldiers to their deaths in, uh, you know, minefields of Italy, like yeah. a, a horrific human being in many ways. 
but also dignified and uh, with a huge understanding of lyric culture and a very sophisticated understanding, particularly of Chinese culture. And then you have Ginsburg, who's democratic and free and open and um, liberated in ways that Town could never imagine. And and but also, you know, just so lazy and sloppy and kind of and out and undignified, right? And the, I mean, I just think that that the hell that Pound went through, I just think it's like it's like a scene out of Dante, where it's like yeah. you know you just get this the, the punishment is the crime. It's like you. And and for them to you know for him to say I'm you're my hero like for I mean it's just too it, it's too horrible like it's it's so horrible. Mm. He uh, speaking of failure he he worked heroically to help all sorts of writers to uh, if you it, want to call it succeed. Yeah, uh, you know confront fear pound pound yes. Both of them did, but Pound, yeah. Well, Pound was the best editor of his of, in history, probably. Well, and such a connector. He's connecting yeah. everyone. I mean, that's what an editor is. Really good at that's. I mean, the great editors that I've known, that's what they are. They're they're incredibly good at connecting people, and yeah. also they know just how to tweak tweak your writing to get it exactly resonant. Like that's you know, and Pound, you know, Pound told E. Cummings to not use capital letters, and he told Hemingway to use a newspaper style. He got Joyce yeah. published, and he turned the wasteland. He turned that. He yeah. created the wasteland, right? So like, yeah. he he was he was modern literature in, in some very yeah. bold way, and he uh, yeah he was a massively um, powerful connector among a lot of people who actually were incredibly difficult to connect. You know, yeah, did yeah. not really want to be connected. Yeah. Well, just winding down here, uh, you have some. I love the way you juxtapose Hemingway and Fitzgerald. And yeah. talking about about their completely opposite what self analysis the the way they felt yeah. about themselves, and yet they had both sort of created great works. Can you speak to that? Yeah. Well, as as I think it was it was Fitzgerald himself who said like Hemingway is was about success. I was about failure. How is the line? I forget what it is. You know, the first time they met, Scott Fitzgerald had already published, you know, half a dozen extremely well-received books, like, you know, Tales of the Jazz Age. He was writing short stories at huge prices for uh, magazines. And, and he was, and Hemingway had published two books. And, like, one of them was printed, like, 82 copies, right? Like, he he would really had um, a very limited career. And yet, Hemingway was absolutely convinced of himself as a success. And Fitzgerald was absolutely convinced of himself as a failure. And they kind of operated on those terms their whole lives, no matter what happened, right? Like no matter what the actual external realities were, they operated, you know, Hemingway operated as a success and Fitzgerald operated as a failure. And it really was a projection. It was totally meaningless in the, in the large scheme of things. But it, it, it is, there is a certain sense in which you conjure these things about yourself, right? Um, that you create an impression of yourself to yourself as a success or a failure. And, and that's certainly true of those two. Well, you say they each got what they thought they were going to get, as so often happens. Yeah. Although, you know, both of them ended up being classics, right? Yes, that's the ultimate objective here. Is that what it is? The, the, the resonance, the meaning that I think of as the whole 
point of this, I think is that's definitely that's definitely part of it, right? For sure. It's like what what is that meaning, and what is the content of that meaning? I mean, I think the Great Gatsby still holds. I mean, still explains so much about America right now, like right right now, and plus slavery and one thing. Yeah, well, also um, broad, like the immense the immense fraud of uh, uh, that is just looms over everything, right? I mean, you open the New York Magazine today, it's one Gatsby after another, right? It's like one, like, it's a crypto Gatsby, or it's a, you know, Russian Gatsby and a Sorokin, or it's what, like, it's, I mean, it's just one Gatsby after another. Hemingway, similarly, too, I mean, like, I wrote a piece for Esquire about him when they were doing the 100th anniversary of the magazine, they sent me down to Cuba, and, like, he still has immense influence over writers. In the, in particularly in the United States. I mean, it, like, he is still the, the, the basic form of the American novel is still really written in a Hemingway style, right? So, yeah. like, I, I mean, I think you can, you can take it in a lot of different ways, but that kind of residual power, I think, is enormously uh, important in this cure for cosmic loneliness that we discussed. Anyone with the desire to make art with words should be aware that James Joyce, James fucking Joyce couldn't make a living at it. Deserving has nothing to do with it. Yeah. I mean, he was he, he's sort of the ultimate example because he really couldn't, I mean, he really could never get a career for himself. I mean, it seems kind of ridiculous to say, but I mean, he was, um, he just could not win for losing. You know, he's just one of those guys. It's like not even his fault. He's just bad. He's just bad at the business of making a living, right? And bad at the business of like <laughs> uh, completely <laughs> incapable of convincing people um, of who he was, right? Yeah. And and there's you know there's a lot of examples from his life. I picked one from when he was in Como, where he was like trying to get a job at an Italian technical college and couldn't do it. Like couldn't couldn't talk his way into it. You uh, just uh, toward the beginning of the book here, you say that digital culture expands the possibility of rejection exponentially, and I'd argue that it also expands the uh, possibility of acceptance. Well, yeah, it, it's just that um, you know you can just send a lot more out into the world and get rejected a lot, right? Like that's like it's like I mean I think for writers in the '60s, like even if you were magazine writing, like it was, you know, not many rejections a year. Like I honestly just live in a world where, I mean, I'd probably get, I'd probably average four or five rejections a week. Right. Like, and that's like that. And that's, that, and, and that's not unusual in any way. It, and it's not necessarily because I'm not publishing stuff or I'm not getting stuff out there. It's just that, you know, I can send stuff anywhere in the world. Right. Oh, like with, with just an email. Right. So, that's the way that th that this process works now, which it just didn't. It's not necessarily about getting stuff into the world, because that's as hard as it's ever been and as easy as it's ever been. It's just that you're going to actually be surrounded by as much rejection as you're just going to be surrounded by a lot more no's. Because also the people receiving the documents get a lot more, right? Yes. yes. You know, because it's so much easier. It's just It's just the math of digital well, I think the other thing, too, on a downer note, is that writers like Mordecai Richler in the 50s and 60s made 10 times uh, uh, 
in in real terms, uh, what uh, writers make today uh, doing the same thing. Right. Well, yeah, I mean, I think, as I said in the book, we're in a kind of an aftermath, right? Like, I've had pieces for various magazines get like a million readers in a day, right? But I that doesn't mean that I get money from right? <laughs> like, it's yeah. like we're in the middle of a transition from yeah. one form of writing to another form of writing. And that's what Samuel Johnson was going through, too, incidentally. Like a, a, a moment of transition. And, you know, it's very rocky. It's very hard. Yeah. Well, let me just say that I don't think your book was uh, certainly not for me. It wasn't a failure. It uh, prompted this uh, wonderful conversation. And uh, that's success in my books. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it for sure. It was lovely to talk to you. Yes, likewise. Stephen... Uh, Marsh is the novelist, essayist, and cultural commentator. He is the author of half a dozen books and has written opinion pieces and essays for The New Yorker, The New York Times, The Atlantic, Esquire, The Walrus, and many others. He lives in Toronto with his wife, Sarah Fulford, and children. Thank you again for being here. Pleasure to be with you. Okay. Take care. All right. You look very, you look young. You look young for your age. <laughs>